You're listening to an audio message from Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. For more information, visit our website at harvestgranger.org. Let me ask you to open your Bible to the beginning. Book 1, chapter 1, page 1, verse 1. We are going back to the beginning. Last week I announced to you that over the course of the next four weeks, I am going to preach the four boldest messages I have ever preached. And those topics are going to be the origin of man, the sanctity of human life, the significance of marriage, and the reality and certainty of judgment. So we, in the next four weeks, are going to talk about evolution, we're going to talk about abortion, sexuality, and hell. And I'm so surprised that you showed up for church tonight knowing that that was going to be the subject matter. So we're going to have to jump right into it. You're going to have to listen fast tonight. A lot of content in this message. I feel like this week I have been studying for an eighth grade biology test as we get into some of the subject matter here tonight. So let me just make the first bold statement. And to make this statement, I'm just going to simply read to you what is written in our doctrinal statement. If you are a member of Harvest Bible Chapel, you have read this statement and have affirmed this very bold statement as it relates to the origin of man. We believe God the Father created all things in six literal days for his glory according to his own will through his son Jesus Christ. He upholds all things by the word of his power and grace exercising sovereign headship over all creation. Now within that statement we have answered some questions like where did I come from? Why am I here? And where exactly am I going? Because when it comes to the origin of man, you basically only have two options. The questions are, do you believe that you were made in the image of God? Or do you believe that God was made in the imagination of men? Did God create man Or did man create God? And how you answer those two questions will determine what flows from your life. Let's answer some questions here. What happens to a culture? What happens to a nation that um, that builds on the foundation of creation? I'm going to ask Nathan to come up here and give me a little hand. We're going to use some building blocks here representing some foundational truths. The foundational truths that we're looking at are creation and evolution. So about 150 years ago, someone wrote a book. Charles Darwin wrote a book called The The Origin of the Species and followed that up with another book called The Descent of Man. And he introduced to us his theory of evolution. And so basically, you may look at these two things like, well, you know, you've got two options. You've either got a foundation based on religion or you have a foundation based on science. I would beg to differ. I believe you have two options for two different religious views because each of these views requires faith. Now, if you choose, as we've done for thousands of years, to build your life based upon what God says in the first three chapters of his book, then you're going to build your life on a foundation of creation and you're going to find out very quickly this creator 
has created some laws for us to follow. God gave the original man, Adam, some laws. You can eat of every other tree, just don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But if you don't follow that law or don't believe in creation, you're left with lawlessness. And from a culture that's rejected God's view of creation, we flow from that a nation of lawlessness. Who's to say which law we follow and who's to say we need any laws and who's to say someone can't just pick up a gun and blow away people because he's not governed by any laws. But if you have a foundation of creation, you understand that the creator has given not only some laws, but some laws concerning marriage. In the first few pages of the creation story, we find that God created a man and he said it wasn't that great for this man to be alone. And so he brought to him a helper. And his uh, idea was that one man and one woman would live a lifetime together in a covenant relationship he called marriage. But if you reject the biblical account of creation, you're left with evolution. And who's to say you have to get married? Who's to say you can't exercise premarital sex and you can't exercise extramarital sex or gay sex or gay marriage for that matter? Who says it has to be one man and one woman? Why can't it be one man and one man or one man and three women? Who's to say? If you build your life based on creation, the culture that builds its life on creation creates boundaries, safety zones where you can travel in, where it's safe. If you remember in the first few pages of the scripture, you find that God, after man fell, clothed these created beings because their eyes were open and they realized they were naked and God handed them some clothes to wear. There's going to be some boundaries even on your clothing, but if you reject creation... Who's to say you have to wear clothes at all? Why can't you just walk around naked and look at naked people? And so from that, we have issues related to pornography in our culture. If you believe that you were created by God, then you understand there is purpose to every human life. Every human life is precious and valuable and significant to God. But if you reject creation, then life doesn't necessarily have meaning. It can be thrown away or maybe even sold for parts. Thank you, Nathan. Now, I want you to look at these two outcomes from these two different faith systems. Do you know what we as the church have many times neglected to do? We've neglected to realize so many of the issues that we stand against in our culture The foundation of it all goes back to what you believe about the origin of man. We spend so much time picketing and protesting and trying to get Supreme Court justices elected so that they will outlaw abortion or or we might, you know, try to, you know, stand against uh, same-sex marriage. And, And so many times we're focused on the surface issues and we don't understand that all of this flows from a wrong understanding of the origin of man. So let's dive into it here. You've got your Bibles open. The first thing that we want to look at is simply this. God created everything out of nothing. Genesis 1 verse 1. The first words in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So we believe that God created everything out of nothing. Do you know what that means? Before 
creation, nothing existed but God. Do you understand what that means? God has existed in eternity past. He never had a beginning and he will never have an end. That means that God is not dependent upon anyone or anything. If I could give you a definition of God, it would be this. God is the self-existent one. Do you remember when God gave his name to Moses in front of the burning bush? Moses asked God, who should I say has sent me? God gave him his name. Do you know what he said? I am that I am. Do you know what he was saying? I exist. Just tell him that. And I've always existed and I will always exist. Theologians call this the isness of God. Did you like that? God just is. And he's not dependent upon anyone or anything for his existence. And God doesn't need anyone or anything. God did not need you. He didn't create you because he was trying to fill a need for loneliness in his life. God was so lonely up there all by himself, he needed somebody like you to keep him company. That is a ridiculous type of understanding of God. Let me show you to you here over in the New Testament, Acts chapter 17, verses 24 through 28. The God who made the world and everything in it. Remember, this is New Testament. By the way, if you're wondering if the New Testament writers, the writer of, of Acts was the, 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 the physician, a doctor, a medical doctor, believed that God created the world and everything in it. So he says, the God who made the whole world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all life and breath and everything, and he made from one man, remember that, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. God's being is not dependent upon anyone or anything, but here's what we need to understand. Our being, our isness, is completely and utterly and totally dependent upon our Creator. Every other molecule that exists in the universe is dependent upon God as its creator. And it was dependent upon being created, and it is dependent upon God continuing to sustain it. Here in Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, we read this, for by him, by the way, the antecedent of the word him in this paragraph is actually Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, played a role in creation for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Do you know that your existence 
is still dependent upon God, if God were to speak one word and withdraw life from you, your isness would be wasness. You are completely dependent. I am completely dependent upon God as my creator. Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Verse 9 says, He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. And so, God created everything out of nothing. Here's the second thing. Everything God created was good. Is that hard for you to believe? When you look at creation, is everything you see good in your opinion? It was good. Everything God created was good. Now, in the rest of the chapter here in chapter 1 of Genesis, um, we see the account of the six days of creation. We're not going to take time to read through every word. You can go back and read the account. It's very chronologically detailed for us. Day 1, day 2, day 3. But I want you to notice at the end of Verse 10, it says, God called the dry land earth and the waters were gathered together. He called the seas and God saw that it was good. This was on day three of creation. Then down in verse 12, the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind and God saw that it was was good. Look at verse 18. He made uh, the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day, over the night, to separate the light from the darkness, and God saw that it was good. Then look down in verse 21. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Look down at verse 25. And God made the beast of the earth according to their kinds. This is on day six. And the livestock according to their kinds, even longhorns. And everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. You picking up a theme here? Everything that God created was good. Here's what we need to understand. God is only capable of making good because God is good. So if you are experiencing anything in your life right now that you would not put in the good bucket, you need to understand that didn't come from God. It's coming from some other source. You say, what other source? We're going to see that here in just a minute. And so you shouldn't blame God for anything in your life that is not good. So many times, because we have forgotten that God is the creator of good, we want to shake our fist in the face of God anytime we're experiencing pain or heartache or death or disease or trauma or some natural disaster. We want to blame God for that. God is not the source of anything that is not good. God is the one, not only that creates good, God is the one who determines what is good. God is the source of all moral judgment. Good and bad are not random determinations of man. If you have ever looked at something and said, it's good or it's bad, do you understand that even your very perception of good and bad 
is evidence that you are a created being made in the image of God with the ability to determine what is good? That's evidence for creation stamped into your soul. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. And what we need to understand is we will be judged by a good God by whether we are good or evil. And the world that you were designed to live and operate in was only good. Do you understand that? The world that you currently live in is not the world that God created you to live in. We have never experienced the world that we were made to live in, yet we long for it in our soul. It's the reason why we're so dissatisfied by created things. And when we try to look to this world to satisfy us, we're left so disappointed because we are looking to created things when God wants us to look to him as the creator. You say, well, what happened? Why, why can't we live in the world? Well, by chapter 3, when we get to Genesis chapter 3, we're going to understand that the good world that God created has been lost through a bad decision by a human being. But everything God created was good. Here's the third thing. The pinnacle of God's creation was a good man named Adam. Let me introduce you to him in chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Something to note here. Do you notice the plural pronoun as God refers to himself? How many gods are there? There's one God. Why is he using plural pronouns about himself? Because there, are, there is one God who exists in three co-equal persons. And so he's having a conversation with himself, and he says, let us make man in our image. Do you see the word image there? Very important word. He says, in our or after our likeness. What is he talking about? When you were a kid, did you like to play with Plato like I did? How many of you be honest with me? You'd still kind of like to play with Plato. It's a little therapeutic for you on stressful days, right? Well, there's one thing. If you, look, if you make a little Plato man, you know, and you put his arms and his head together and all that stuff, there's one thing about the Plato man that you cannot change. He always has your fingerprints on him, right? You can always tell who made him. In the same sense, that Plato man is stamped with your image. Man is stamped with the image, the fingerprints of God are on you as God's creation. And so there are things about man that are like God. The fact that you have a heart, the fact that you are an intelligent being, the fact that you are a moral being gives evidence to the fact that you were created and stamped. You have the image of God on you. Notice it says, let them rule over, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him, notice, male and female, he created them. Gender was created by God. Gender identity is assigned by God. 
And so I want you to understand, because of the image of God that is stamped on every human being, do you know what that means? Every human being has dignity, worth, and purpose. Because God has assigned his image to each one of us. This is what we understand about human life. It was created. It is a gift that is given. And life is to be protected. And life is to be enjoyed as a gift from God. This is why we protect the life of the unborn. This is why we stand against physician-assisted suicide. This is why we punish those who take the life of another. This is why we believe in complementary roles of men and women in the context of marriage. Understand this. Men are good. I was expecting a couple of amens by there. A couple of ladies just validate our existence a little bit here. Would you like another run at that? Okay. It's because God created men. Men are good. All right, and women are good. Yeah. Way to go, guys. You did not let me down at that point, okay? But notice this. I want you to look down in verse 31. After God had created men and women and put them together in the context of marriage, in verse 31 he says, And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. Do you understand what that is? Men are good. Women are good. Men and women together are very good. It's an upgrade. It's a creation of God. For one man and one woman in a one flesh, one lifetime, one covenant relationship, that is a very good thing. For the man, for the woman, for the boys and the girls that are raised in that context, and for the culture at large, it is very good when you do it according to God's plan. But notice, if you remove the creator from that formula, what happens? You come up with all kinds of chaos, all kinds of things in culture that are not so good. Some of you grew up in context that you would say, this is not good for me to be growing up without a father, for me to be growing up with stepmoms and stepdads and stepgrandmothers and stepbrothers and sisters and all these different different arrangements of formulas. And I realize uh, these are bold statements I'm making here. God's original design, his created order, one man, one woman, one marriage, kids growing up in the context of that relationship. That is a very good thing for our culture because life has intrinsic dignity, worth, and purpose. We practice sexual faithfulness. Because every life has dignity, worth, and value. We have a heart for orphans and refugees. Because every life is important and it's created by God, we have a heart for adoption. This is the reason we reject racism. Do you understand that evolution lays a foundation for racism? Charles Darwin, in his book, The Descent of Man, which was a follow-up to his book, The Origin of the Species, theorized that man, having evolved from apes, had continued to evolve in various races, with some races more developed than others. Darwin classified his own race, conveniently, the white man, as more evolved or more advanced 
than those lower organisms such as pygmies, and he called different people groups savage, low, and degraded. Racist. And it all comes when you remove God as the creator. We reject racism because we realize we're all descended from one man. There's really only one race. There's no advantage. God created all of them. And so we understand this when we accept creation. And evolution provides no compassion for those who are weak, disadvantaged, or disabled. Do you have a heart for those that are weaker and, and less fortunate and disadvantaged? Do you have a heart for, 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 for those that are disabled? Do you realize you're a hypocrite if you believe in evolution and have a heart for people who are less fortunate than you? Why? Because evolution is based upon natural selection or survival of the fittest. Do you know about this? Survival of the fittest is the theory that the strong eat the weak. And yet what we believe, because God has created us, we have a responsibility, the strong protect the weak. But if you remove the creator from the formula, what's your basis for having a heart for people who are less fortunate than you? And so we understand the pinnacle of God's creation was a good man named Adam. Here's the fourth thing. Biblical authority is under attack by evolutionary theories. Now, please understand that creationists do not deny the reality of microevolution. We see all kinds of variation within individual species. But the biblical account of creation does not allow for macroevolution. One species evolving into a different species. So we understand that there's all kinds of variation and change and you can do different breeding, but you've never bred a dog into a horse, okay? The, the, the Bible doesn't allow for that. And we don't see that anywhere in the, in, in the scientific evidence. That's never happened. And there's no evidence that it ever has. Look in Genesis chapter 2. Look at verse 15. A little conversation that goes on here between the first uh, man. It says in verse 15, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You shall eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So there's the first command. Now skip over to chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And so here's a talking serpent. We understand this was, um, this was our enemy. This was the devil. This was... The, the fallen angel Lucifer that God cast upon the surface of the earth. By the way, he's still here. He's still asking the same question. Did God really say? I mean, can, maybe you misinterpreted him. 
I mean, maybe he was just kind of speaking in poetic language. Maybe it was just an allegory. And, and do you know what's happening today? In man's attempt to explain the origin of man without God, when we read the account of what God has actually said, we ask the same question. Did, did God really say that? I mean, can you really take literally true? Maybe Adam is just kind of a prototype of kind of these ape-like men that evolved. And, and maybe it's just, maybe what we have in Genesis is just kind of an allegory or it's poetry. In verse um, 2, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. Interestingly, she adds something that God didn't actually say. And so on the first page of our Bible, we see the two great errors of theology. To say less than God has said, did God actually say that? Or to say more than God actually says. To say less than what God has said is liberalism. To say more than what God has said is legalism. We want to literally believe what God actually has said. And so in verse 4, the serpent very boldly says to the woman, You will not surely die. And so the devil tries to remove from her mind that there will be any consequences to disobeying God. And the same thing is happening today as man tries to explain his origin without God. He casts doubt upon what God has actually said and invents theories to explain his origin without God. Now, I remember when I was in the eighth grade and I went into my science class class in my eighth grade science class at Eisenhower Junior High School in Lawton, Oklahoma, and my football coach taught us about evolution. How many of you uh, had your football coach double as the science teacher in school? All right, it wasn't that convenient. It was like wonderful. I mean, this is great because, you know, he, about all he knew was what the eighth grade textbook had taught him about, uh, you know, evolutionary theory. And so he, he began to unpack this. And, and, you know, you graduate, some of you have degrees in biology and, and have taken PhD classes in this stuff. And it's been said for so long and it's been said so often, you've studied evolutionary theory because of your education more than you've actually studied what God has actually said that's just kind of ingrained into your thought. And it goes something like this, just by way of review. The universe began with a big bang about 13 billion years ago. And the stars formed about 10 billion years ago, and the sun formed about 5 billion years ago, and the molten earth began to form about 4.5 billion years ago. Water formed in the earth about 3.8 billion years ago, and over millions of years, life formed from non-life. Don't really have an explanation for that, but just kind of there were these there was this amoeba and 
was swimming around in some primordial soup and lightning struck and kind of divided the amoeba into two amoebas and they got married and had baby amoebas and, and there were upgrades through the generations and the amoebas got smarter and more sensitive to light and, and then they began to swim and, and then they decided they wanted to walk so they took a step out onto the land and they crawled out, not explaining how they were actually able to breathe outside of water but somehow they figured that out and developed lungs and, and then the you know, the, the, the amphibian turned into a dog and the dog turned into an ape. And somewhere around 1.5 million years ago, the ape stood up, began to walk, invented fire, and here we are. You've been taught this? That, that's, that's, that's the alternative. That's the godless explanation to the origin of man. Now, listen. We as Christians and as creationists, uh, we are not afraid of science, okay? We understand science to be an act of worship. Do you understand that God has written two books, one with words and one without words? Psalm 19 says this, the heavens, the created universe, declares the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day unto day pours forth speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. And so science, rightly understood, is the study of God's general revelation. It's reading the book without words. But we understand in order to have relationship with God, we need more revelation than what we can read in creation. And so God has written a book with words to tell us not only there is a creation, but how it was created and why it was created. So we read both the book without words and the book with words. Not only general revelation, but special revelation. And please hear me. As Christians, we understand there will be no final contradiction between the book with words and the book without words. Because God wrote both. And so anytime you see some type of contradiction, you're either misinterpreting what you're reading in the book without words or you're misinterpreting something you're reading in the book with words, but in the end, there will be no final contradiction between the two. God wrote both. So we need to understand we have an opportunity of knowing God through general revelation and special revelation. But of course... When you dismiss the book with words and all you're left with is the book without words, you're left to try to fill in the gaps. And so in 1859, Charles Darwin tried to fill in the gaps and he created his theory of origins without God. He created this whole model of evolutionary biology. Now, we've heard it taught so often as Christians we just kind of think, well, those people are smarter than us, and they're our football coaches, for crying out loud. You know, they couldn't be wrong. So, you know, we, we just kind of have to accept that. And if what they're saying is true, then we, want, we also believe the Bible's true, so maybe we could just kind of marry the two and harmonize the two. And so what we've come up with is what we call 
theistic evolution. Why couldn't God have used evolution to create man? Let's just, let's just harmonize that, let's settle the debate, shake hands, and just be friends. And so we look at the Bible, it's like, well, we see the six days of creation, but who's to say the days couldn't be billions of years, right? Well, the problem with that is the sequence is wrong. When you read the Bible, you understand that evolution teaches the stars came billions of years before earth, but the Bible says that earth was created on day one and the stars were created on day four. So now you got a sequence problem. Um, evolution teaches reptiles came before the birds, but Genesis says that birds came on day five and the reptiles came on day six. Insects in evolution showed up before the birds, but in Genesis, birds were created on day five, and the insects didn't show up until day six. So you, your attempt to marry the two, it still doesn't work. Uh, other people would say, well, the Bible, this, this part of the Bible is just kind of poetry, and it wasn't really intended to give us kind of a detailed account of creation. You just kind of have to read it as allegory. All kinds of problems with that. Now you're left to be the decider of what parts of God's book are meant to be taken literal. When every person up until 1859 read this as the literal account of what God had done. By the way, God was the only one there to give the play-by-play -play as to how it happened. And yet somehow you think you're smarter than... So there's problems. There's also scientific problems. Could I just very quickly give you a few scientific problems with evolution? Now, again, I'm not a biologist, and, and I, you know, I, but listen, there's, there's some problems that even the evolutionists understand with their model. Here's the first. The fossil record. Charles Darwin himself said this. Why, if species have descended from other species, do we not everywhere see innumerable transitional forms? In other words, he's looking at the fossil record, and he doesn't see the missing links between the species. He says, why is it not all nature in confusion instead of species being, as we see them, well-defined? Darwin admitted the most obvious and gravest objection which can be argued against my theory is the fossil record. In other words, you look at the record and you would expect to see in evolutionary theory, you would expect to see in the fish and then kind of a frog-like fish and then kind of a fish-like frog and then a frog. But what you see in the fossil record, fish-frog. Where's the transitional form? It's not there. And you know what Darwin explained? We'll find it. It's been 150 years. been looking. Still hadn't found it. So there's problems. Here's another one. The complexity of advantageous mutations. Say that five times fast. You really impress your friends if you come up with big multisyllabic words when you're explaining evolution. Now, now here's, the, here's the theory of evolution, right? You understand that the idea is that there were these very minor, slow, over millions of, millions of years, genetic mutations that would happen. So a baby would be born and it would have a slight upgrade over its parents. Maybe it's more sensitive to light and that was kind of the closest thing to an eye and then it became more sensitive to light and it was 
they could see better, and, and they passed this, they got married to another one with a better eye, and they had babies with better eyes, and, and the eye formed, that's the theory, right? Now, do you understand that 99% of all genetic mutations are fatal, okay? If you, if you had a baby and the doctor came, I have good news, you have a baby mutant. Is that good news or bad news? Okay, that's, that's typically bad news, right? Um, it's not an upgrade. Uh, mutations tend to lead toward extinction, not evolution, all right? So it's usually a bad thing. But then you have to explain how the, the different complexities um, work together with other mutations to actually give the, the thing an advantage. Let me, let me just describe it this way. There is, there is a bug, the bombardier beetle, okay? He's a handsome critter, don't you think? And there he is. Now, let me tell you about the bombardier beetle. The bombardier beetle has a defense mechanism. When he is under attack by a predator, what he does is he swings around these two swivel cannons in its tail and fires a toxic gas at 212 degrees to ward off an attacking enemy. So imagine a mean old army ant coming to drag Mr. Beetle back to his colony of ants to have him for lunch. And unbeknownst to him, he walks up and gets blasted. Let me, let me show you how this happens. Watch this. Bad news for the ant. Now watch it in slow motion. I think I'll go find something else to do. So this toxic gas doesn't actually kill the ant, but it does for a while kill his appetite for beetles, okay? So he goes and finds something else to do. Now I want you to think about this in terms of evolution. In order for all of that to happen, it requires two different chemicals that if you extract them from the beetle and put them in a laboratory and combine them together, it actually explodes, okay? So Apparently, in the beetle, there is a, an enzyme inhibitor that prevents it from actually exploding inside the beetle until he moves it around to these two combustion chambers where it's ignited by another enzyme, and then he's got the ability to aim and control these cannons in a way that he can ward off these enemies. Now, try to imagine that happening through evolution. Remember, every little change has to have an advantage. What if Mr. Beetle develops the two chemicals before the inhibitor enzyme evolves? He blows himself up. Or what if he develops the poison gas before he develops the ability to aim and control? Here comes the ant, but instead he blows himself up because he can't control the toxic gas. Or what if he develops the ability to aim and control before he develops the toxic gas? He fires blanks and gets eaten by the ant. 
all of this happens according to evolution, it all kind of has to just, it just kind of works. Or maybe God created Mr. Bombardier Beetle with a defense mechanism so that he could survive. Here, here's another one. The shrinking sun. Guess what? A little bad news today. Today, the sun will shrink at a rate of five feet. And that's been happening every day. The sun is shrinking by five feet a day. If you extrapolate that out four million years ago, the sun would actually have been touching the earth. Statistics have shown very few people can live <laughs> while the sun is touching the earth. That's a problem for evolution. Or how about the drifting moon? Uh, the moon is drifting away from the earth at a rate of two inches per year. Four million years ago, the moon would have been so close to the earth that the gravitational pull of the moon would have created tidal waves on the earth that would have flooded the continents two times every day. Statistics have shown you can only drown every living thing on the earth one time a day, okay? <laughs> That's a problem. And here's the favorite. My favorite is the scientific law of thermodynamics. There are two of them. Do you know the first law of thermodynamics? The first law of thermodynamics is these two properties, matter and energy, remain constant. Now, they are constantly converting themselves to one or the other, matter into energy, energy into matter, but the total remains constant. That's the first law of thermodynamics. Evolution has absolutely no explanation for matter or energy. Where did it come from? Creationists have an explanation. Uh, God made matter. God made energy, right? The second law of thermodynamics is even more problematic. Do you know what it states? The second law of thermodynamics states that everything tends toward disorder. Organization without anything happening tends to move toward disorganization. How many of you have teenagers? Let's say you love them enough to go clean their room, okay? And with intelligence and design, you put everything in its place. Come back in a week. What happened? It's a disaster. Why not? Because the teenager without intelligence or without organization just simply lived in the room, right? That proves the second law of thermodynamics. Or you go through a drive-thru, you order a Coke, you set it in your car, you come back at the end of the day, you forget you left it in the car, you come back at the end of the day. What do you have? Blah, right? Everything that was ordered and carbonated in there, it just bleh. It just turned. It's the second law of thermodynamics. It, it happens in the world all the time. The world is winding down. The universe is winding down. It's not winding up. Everything is moving toward a state of disorganization. That's the second law of thermodynamics, and it violates the theory of evolution. What do you do in science when you have a law and a theory contradict? Which one do you throw out? You throw out the theory and stick with the law. And the second law of thermodynamics is exactly what the Bible says is happening 
to the earth. Would you like to see the second law of thermodynamics in the Bible? It's Romans chapter 8. Notice this. For the creation was subjected to futility. So when was the creation subjected to futility? Remember, the, the world was made good by a good God. We're going to read it in a minute. But it's with the fall of man. It's when sin entered into the world. The world was cursed. And you know what happened? The world began to move toward a state of chaos and disorganization. The second law of thermodynamics is what God created in the world after the fall of man. And Romans chapter 8 tells us exactly what happened. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. Bondage to corruption, what does that sound like? Decay, chaos, disorganization, suffering, pain, death, disease. And obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of man. This verse is set in the context of the fact that one day we believe God's going to reverse the curse. That one day God's going to withdraw the second law of thermodynamics and set everything back to its original state. That's what we read the story of scripture to be. He goes on and says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves groan inwardly as we await the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. Have you ever had a day when things were going so bad, you just groaned? Just lose someone that you love? You find out there's been a terrible tragedy, there's been a natural disaster, and you just Oh, it hurts so bad. Do you know that if you have ever done that, that is an indication that you are a created being living in a world that is subjected to the second law of thermodynamics, a world that you were not designed to live in. And you're waiting for the day that God reverses the curse and puts it back to his created order. It's the second law of thermodynamics. Now, with all of those problems, all of those scientific problems with creation, I don't know about for you, we can disagree on this. You do not have to agree with me. But I do not have enough faith to believe in evolution. It takes more faith to believe in evolution with all of its gaps and all of its holes and all of its unanswered questions than to believe that an intelligent, Loving, creative God took the initiative to speak the worlds into existence and is today holding it together by the word of his power. Here's the last thing and the most important. Bold belief in the historical Adam is essential to grasping the gospel. Now, please hear me. We do not have to agree upon the age of the earth. We, we do not have to agree on all things. We, we have to agree on this. That without an historical Adam, we can't even understand our Bibles. From Adam, the historical Adam, 
flows the entire human race. Adam, historically, is foundational to the most important doctrines in the rest of our Bibles related to sin and salvation. Belief in a literal historical Adam, as recorded in the first three chapters of our Bible, will test your belief in the inspiration, the inerrancy, the sufficiency, and the authority of the Bible. The biblical account of Adam is irreconcilable with modern theories of evolution to present man as a descendant from pre-human ancestors. Instead, what we believe is that God inspired the author of Genesis to write an accurate, literal description of God's created activities in six consecutive literal days. The Bible presents Adam as a single individual rather than a type for a whole bunch of people. And the New Testament writers believed in the historical Adam. Jesus believed that Moses authored this narrative and it included one man historically and literally described by the name Adam. So for you to stand over the Bible and somehow say, yeah, I think Jesus was wrong about that, um, that's a problem. If you're going to say, I, I believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead and walked on water, and why would you believe all that if you would stand over the greatest miracle that ever occurred and said, yeah, it couldn't have happened that way, we must have evolved? That's a problem. You can't even understand your Bible or affirm what the rest of the Bible says if you discount the first 11 chapters. Here's another problem. Without the historical Adam, we cannot understand our world. What, what do you do with pain and suffering if you do not believe that it was the result of Adam's sin? I want you to look in Genesis chapter 3 in verse 17. So Adam has sinned. They've eaten the fruit. And God says to Adam in chapter 3 verse 17, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. There's the introduction of the second law of thermodynamics. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, a reference of death. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And so we have the introduction of futility, the curse entropy, pain, suffering, thorns, and death. If you reject this story, where does all that come from? If you say that wasn't a literal Adam that literally sinned, creating literal pain and a literal fall, do you understand what you by default are saying? That it wasn't that 
Adam fell and created this chaos, it was God that fell and created a world with pain and suffering and death and disease and cancer. Do you understand that if a literal Adam had not literally sinned, you and I would be living in a world without death, without cancer, without Alzheimer's, without orphans, without refugees, without terrorism, without human trafficking, and a thousand other evils. But because we believe the Bible, we understand the root of all of that is sin. If Adam had not sinned, there would be no flooding, no hurricanes, no tornadoes, no earthquakes, no famine, no Ebola. All of it is a result of the curse of Adam's sin. Without a historical understanding of Adam, we cannot understand our sin. If the account of Adam is a fable, then there is no original sin. If Adam is a fable, the fall is a fable, sin is a fable. If sin is a fable, we don't need forgiveness, we don't need grace, and we don't need a Savior. But because there is a real Adam who really sinned, we need a real Savior. And we understand sin is not just things that we do, not just sins, plural, that we commit, but sin as a part of our nature because we inherited it from a great, 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 great granddaddy sinner that we are natural born sinners that don't need education to solve our problem or a financial upgrade to solve our problem. We don't need, a, uh, uh, we don't need to be reformed in our minds. We need to be transformed in our hearts because that's where the problem really is. We understand all of that through the story of a literal Adam that we have been descended from. Without a historical Adam, we cannot even understand our salvation. I want you to look at verse 21. Chapter 3, verse 21. Maybe the most important verse in the Bible. And then the Lord God made for Adam. Now, just stop and think about that. The fact that God would want to have anything to do with his rebellious sinful creation at that point is evidence of God's goodness. That God would want to make anything else for Adam after all that he's done and Adam has stepped outside of his boundaries. What a gracious God. And then the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Skins. Where did God get skins? From an animal. What did God have to do to the animal to get his skin? Blood had to be shed in order to cover Adam's sin. We can't even understand the gospel 
without understanding. There was a literal Adam who had literal sin and literally had to be covered and atoned for by a God who was gracious. That is the story of Jesus Christ. For one day, God the Father took his son and killed him. And his blood was shed to provide a covering for all who would repent and believe. That's the gospel. And if you say that really didn't happen, that verse 21, that's just kind of poetic. Why does blood need to be shed? You have no answer for that. Death of Jesus Christ is the covering for Adam's sin and all who live in him. We see this in the New Testament, Romans chapter 5. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Who was the one man? Adam. Even so, by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Who was the obedient man? Jesus. Remember, this is New Testament. This is the Apostle Paul who is referring to a literal historical man named Adam who disobeyed, and because of his disobedience, we were all made sinners. And because of a literal historical man named Jesus who obeyed everything God said, we now have an opportunity to experience his grace and be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned through death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Without a historical Adam, we cannot understand our future. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. For as by a man came death. Who was that? Adam. Literal historical Adam. Again, we're in the New Testament. Referring all the way back to the first page of our Bibles. As, through, as by one man's death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. Which man was that? A literal historical Jesus. And then he sums up all of human history. It's, it's almost as if you can simplify the whole story of human history, the origin of man, till its final um, consummation in Christ this way. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Here's the story of the Bible. There's only one story in the Bible. You will either be found at the judgment in Adam as a sinner or you will be found in Christ as a justified sinner. It's that simple. And yet if you remove the first few pages of the Bible and you say there wasn't a real Adam who was created... You have no need for a real Savior who died. Through Adam, death came. Through Christ and his death, life is available to all who will believe what God has given. Have you believed? Do you understand the significance of the story? Don't be so quick to discount it. And look for other ways to explain the origin of man. It is critical to our understanding of all that Christ has done. Let me ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes.
We're going to be out of here in just a minute. But do you have faith to believe that? Be bold. You don't have to cave. Stand for what God has said. Why don't you ask God right now, Lord, would you give me the faith to believe that what you have said is true? And Lord, right now I want to express to you how grateful I am that somehow you would include me as part of your story. As an act of your grace, you've created me. My life has worth and value and purpose. You might even confess so many of the things that I find myself involved in is because I haven't literally taken you at your word. Lord, give me faith to believe that what you've said is true. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't we stand?